cool. Yeah, Brooklyn's are. I mean, it's been weird. I mean, you know, for me, it's all about this newborn life. So that's like then. The yeah, how old? How old is your baby? She's now in eight months, so wow. I can't even say newborn anymore. Yeah. I gotta call myself a veteran. Yeah. yeah. What's, what you do? What's, her, what's her name? Gloria. 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 Okay. I'm officially going back to work in this this term, so I can't. I, I, my my I've been using that excuse for so long, like right. I can't you know do shit. <laughs> but at some point, you gotta like figure out how to do other shit too. You know. Yeah. Yep. Now, will yep. you be doing the thing after she's a year old where you do the she's 14 months old or will you just say like a year and a bit? <laughs> you know, you I've know. always wondered about that. But, yeah, I think I will because you, you get really yeah. fine grain with this shit. Yeah. I've always been like she's 67 oh, weeks today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you meet parents and they're like, oh, she's 22 months. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to make me do um, math now. Yeah. But it's sort of important because the difference between, you know, there is a big difference between one month between 12 months and 24 months so you know to say one contains so many multitudes right uh but i'll to say I'll nothing say of one. 60 months context dependent i'll say one uh but <laughs> if i'm talking to another like new parent nerd then right. i can go oh she's you know 74 weeks yeah right, right. <laughs> she's 200 and, she's at 433 days <laughs> i was actually keeping track of the days i was like the first hundred days of Gloria. Wow. Uh, I was making a big deal about it, but I've lost track now. <laughs> did you watch any of the DNC last night? The DNC convention day night. I did one. not. I actually fucking forgot about it. I'm Me so, too. I've, I've gotten COVIDized and I'm like the NBA playoffs started. I didn't Me need too. to catch up with that. Oh, you did. I need to catch up. I, I'm like, I'm going to watch the playoffs, but it, none of it quite feels real. You know, it's all yeah. bizarre. Well, I will say the NBA playoffs have been the, just the wonderful gift we've gotten. I mean, I've watched every game. Oh, you have. So you oh came my back. God. Yeah. And so how is it? I watched a little bit, but I haven't. I don't care if there's ever fans again. Okay. I don't really. Care. Yeah. You now, hear what does things it look you've like? never heard. It's like it's like watching. The, it reminds me of kind of watching the Olympics, where they okay. they do have this arena with these like virtual faces. Like I can watch the game. And they see my real reactions. And it's not really offensive like you would think when I say it that way. Um, they play a little music in between, you know, timeouts. And they have commentary. So it feels really good. But it feels like you're watching. Actually, it feels more like you're watching a volleyball game. What's your take, Tony, as, a, as an NBA fan? What's your take on the on the quality of play? Because I've heard mixed takes. I could I didn't really sense when I... I Tuned into the first Clippers Lakers game. I haven't really watched since, but I think how are it's they? Does been it look um, like regular. Yeah, totally. It's okay. it's amazing. I mean, like Damian Lillard is the new Allen Iverson. I mean, there's a lot of really great storylines going on, but it's also just like they're all living together. So like you're seeing on social media. Um, oh, so it is like the Olympics. It's like the Olympic. Yeah, yeah. Right. no, that's right. a good analogy. I hadn't yeah. thought about that. Yeah. So yeah. like yes, yesterday. Uh, um, Donovan Mitchell dropped like 51 on a player from uh, um, Denver. And then the guy was walking FaceTime and he's like, look who I got to run into. And it's just like, <laughs> you know what I mean? And they're like laughing at oh, each other. Good. So it's, it's, there's something really special about it. I think it's a really, under the circumstances, a really good experience. So I suggest getting into it. But that is why I'm, I totally, I chose that over the DNC convention. Yeah. I watched Bernie's like eight minutes Me too. with the blocks of wood in the background, which I liked. Yeah, I, I actually woke <laughs> up this morning and kind of Vermont fast forwarded through through the the BS and then just got to the like, Michelle Obama, Bernie. Um, um, I actually want to see the wanted to see the Kasich thing just to see how they framed. It's fine. That. Yeah. It's exactly what you would think. Yeah. It's like a smirky 
this would never normally happen, but and it's just like you want to go shut the fuck they, up. They do that every year. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they do that every every yeah. DNC. They always bring out a Republican who's switching sides. They 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 always trot somebody out. Right. I actually right. felt the most they powerful. They had Bloomberg right in. Was it oh, last time? Yeah. Bloomberg, the most powerful they, thing they, yeah, they did was they have a lot of musical guests that are kind of like performing from wherever they are, and it's it's actually kind of nice. And then they do like a montage of like. Uh, people who have died of COVID and soldiers and then Biden and like all the people in his family that have died. And it's like kind of sad because obviously it's effective yeah. and it's their, their message is kind of like, we need to unite. And it, that to me is the only effective thing. And I also thought they should have closed with Bernie, not Michelle Obama. Yeah. I feel like he deserved at least one closing night, but of course, that's the thing. He doesn't get you. You lose, you don't get shit. You know, right, you get right. what they decide to give you. Yeah. This is No Politics at the Dinner Table. I'm Tony Biancasino. And I'm Amit Prakash. And today we have on Matt Karp, who is a favorite, one of our favorite guests. Um, he's right. the Associate Professor of History at Princeton University and a contributing editor to uh, Jacobin Magazine, which is a phenomenal publication. I have a feeling this is going to be a long one. Yeah, it's, it always is. Let's, let's get right into it. Okay, so today we got Matt Karp, uh, associate professor at Princeton University in the History Department. Uh, he's the author of This Vast Southern Empire, Slaveholders at the Helm of American Foreign Policy, published by Harvard, Harvard, I think, yep. uh, 2016. Um, great book. You should read it if you haven't read it already. Um, but right now, he's got the must-read piece in Jacobin, um, which is basically an autopsy of the Bernie campaign. Um, so thanks so much for coming on. And so I've got a million questions. It's a really interesting piece. Um, but I'll start out with like the first part of it and like all these, these different parts, right? So the first part, um, you're talking about these two lessons about the campaign. Um, one is that there is a powerful backing for the democratic socialist message, right? That, that what Bernie has exposed or summoned is the fact that there are millions of people who do not, are not turned off by the word socialism anymore um, and once they hear about what that actually means right and then the second part is that there is a ferocious response from established interests uh, to put out that fire um, so what you could give you some give us some details about what drew you to those conclusions yeah I mean uh the piece is such a it is such a hybrid it's a polyglot it's kind of like nine thousand words of just me you know trying to you know pour out every little thought or idea i had about this uh the triumphs and the tragedy of the of the sanders campaigns over the past trying to consider them in some ways as one phenomenon mm -hmm. you know from 20 now that you know whatever i'm not fingers crossed for 20 2024 you know medical science has done wonders you know <laughs> so maybe maybe it's premature but this may be the bernie era you know it may have we may have closed the parenthesis on it and yeah to try to think at least as a first draft of what this means historically um and 
I do think collectively those those are the lessons, and they were the lessons after 2016. Um, so in some sense, it's not blindingly new, but I think 2020 amplified them in both ways. Uh, both showed the sustain the, the the sort of sustained power of this new mass coalition for social for you know democratic socialism, as, as Sanders calls it. Um, that it not, didn't just win a bunch of Hillary Clinton protest votes. You know, that was the case in some places, but Bernie re retained enormous support, uh, you know, uh, the, the support of, uh, for, you know, previously unorthodox, um, you know, social democratic ideas uh, and, and improved, you know, made, made clear that the constituency for them is in the millions and is deeply attached to these ideas, is not just... Uh, is not just a sort of the accident of one particular electoral cycle, uh, and and then at the the second half, yeah, I mean we we knew we we knew that the DNC was ganging and et cetera was ganging up against Clint, against uh, you know putting its thumb on the scale against Bernie in 2016, but we saw it even more eloquently in 2020. Uh, we saw how they weren't able just to sort of put all their chips into one pot, but they were able to actually shape the pot itself uh, and reshape the field at the last minute. Uh, in order to to defeat Sanders and signal to voters, um, you know where all of your who all of your elected leaders are and who they are not supporting. Um, so I think in some ways, 2020 just it, 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 it sort of amplified all the things we knew from 2016, but but um, but heightened them and heightened them too. Um, you know, it's an unprecedented situation. If you want to, you know, to flesh it out with a few more details, I mean, we've never seen just to take the to take the first half of it, just historically, we've never seen, we've had insurgent candidates run on the left before. We've had inspiring candidates run, uh, you know, Jesse Jack, Ted Kennedy, Jesse Jackson, they all supported, um, you know, uh, programs that were far left of the democratic establishment of, you know, President Carter at the time, or, you know, the du Michael Dukakis mm -hmm. Democratic Party in 88. Um, but, those, but those movements um, around, uh, around Kennedy and around Jackson did not produce sort of issue-based mobilizations and changes in national polling. You know, it's not like after Jesse um, was defeated in, in 1988, you saw dur a durable kind of chunk of the Democratic electorate that was like, I'm a Jesse Jackson Democrat and you're not going to fool me, Bill Clinton. That's not what happened at all. That did, that uh, the, the, the coalition that supported Jackson frayed and did not cohere around any kind of ideological pole. Um, and I, I think what Sanders has done is, um, is, you know, we'll see what happens after he's, after he's left the scene, but these aren't Bernie Sanders Democrats who are attached only to the great old, grand old man in Vermont, uh, and will be captured by any elector who comes along in, in primaries, you know, going forward, they're committed to Medicare for all. You see the Medicare for all, um, you know, polling has, 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 has really stabilized at over something like 75% to even up to 85%, depending on how you phrase it, within the Democratic electorate. It's really powerful. Um, and even though the leaders aren't going to give it to us right now, um, I don't think that those the voters who voted for Sanders are going to abandon those commitments going forward. So that's, that's really significant. That, that's told us something that we can use. At the same time, the opposition uh, is even fiercer than it was against Jesse, which is a crazy thing to think about. Um, given how much Jesse Jackson scared the party establishment. But I was thinking, looking back at that 88 campaign, you know, you still had, they didn't have a, 
you know, uh, Paul Simon and, and Dick Gebhardt didn't beat Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar that campaign. Jackson won in Michigan. He shocked the world and everyone was scared. And but Al Gore was still thumping along, trying to win Southern votes. Um, you know, the, the field did not fray. The current Democratic establishment, this is the other lesson that's that's we have to take to heart. They they have more power over the party, both in terms of their ideological unity and the organizational kind of coordination within the party, the elected officials, the, the party leaders, the Pelosi, Schumer types, all of the electeds, they have more, they're moving in a greater lockstep than they than, than the party was ever coordinated before, I think. So um, with the exception of some, you know, the squad types out on the edge, um, this is a really ideologically homogenous party, I think, at the level of the elected official. And we have to figure, and they're committed to sort of holding the barricade against the the Sanders program. So I think that has to be, we have to start with that when we go forward and talk about what will politics be like under a potential Biden administration or whatever. We have to remember that fact. We can't forget how, 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 how effective this coordination was in this moment. That's not to say it can't be overcome ever um, or that there aren't elements that can't be pried apart, et cetera. But I think we shouldn't forget um, the unprecedented nature of that, of that coordination in, in 2020. Okay. Uh, I got like one follow up here. Um, So in the piece and what you just articulated, you talk a lot about the sort of institutional conservatism of the DNC, right? That which is not necessarily, according to your argument, reflective of the the voting blocks, right? And is that is that the institutions themselves um, are entrenched and they they're self-interested, right? They're self-interested in the status quo. So therefore, they they try to reproduce it. but so one thing that's that's come up, which is different in your piece versus what's you know people usually report, and also what I've sort of thought about, which is struck me by what you said, which is everybody who was a Bernie supporter in 2016 was like, yeah, the fix was in, right? That that you know these super delegates and you know is right. completely rigged game, and you know the economy's rigged, the politics is rigged, everything's rigged, and I think there's there's a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of you know, obvious uh, chicanery with with the DNC uh, in 2016. The the difference in 2020 was like, okay, the DNC is going to do all these reforms, particularly with respect to these superdelegates, and, you know, the chips will fall where they may. And your argument seems to suggest that actually, you t- you're talking about they're like sort of shaping how the outcome um, by, by, I, I don't know, sort of manipulating... Um, the bounds of the discussion and what's what's considered to be um, uh, objectionable or permissible, and then and then rallying, maybe coordinating in in, in a way uh, would be candidates to sort of in lockstep get behind Biden. So is that is that what you're suggesting? What, what, to talk about it a little bit. Yeah, yeah, pretty, it's along those lines. I mean, I mean. What you had, I mean, if the chronology here really matters, and it was kind of a, a strange thing to be sitting there, you know, I wrote most of this in May and June. So some some of the, you know, we could talk later about how more recent developments may have, you know, updated the analysis. But it was a little surreal sitting here in the middle of June, you know, post-COVID, reading, had, reading news articles from like February and being reminded what a different, totally different world it was, you know, where in late February, you know, Pete Buttigieg is holding the largest rally um, you know, of the campaign in Tennessee. He's, 
you know, you know, you know, releasing memos about his Super Tuesday strategy. You know, this is a very divided field. Uh, and the New York Times is saying this, the least likely possibility will be that this field will consolidate. Mm -hmm. How will Sanders be stopped? He's just won in the popular vote all four of the first, the, sorry, all three of the first contests. He knows the odds are long in South Carolina, but he's set up for a Super Tuesday explosion against this divided field. Joe Biden has been pummeled everywhere. What, what, how can this picture be changed? And that was happening all the way up till the end of the month of February. And then in the span of, you know, three days, basically, Biden wins South Carolina, Buttigieg and Klobuchar broke, uh, you know, drop out. And there's the, you know, the, you know, Farm Aid concert in Dallas where they have every celebrity, you know, um, you know, every Democratic Party celebrity comes out uh, and, and suddenly spontaneously endorses Biden. And, and, I don't think that this is, you know, um, uh, they, there wasn't it wasn't chicanery. You know, it's not they didn't rig the election. They still had to, you know, convince voters to vote for this brand. Um, so it's not it's not it's not an accusation of foul play. It's just it's just clear. It's a political move, but it's also wrong to say that this was just an accident. And Buttigieg knew that his goose was cooked. That 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 is a logic that would never have applied in a primary before now. If you if if he didn't know that his goose was cooked because his goose is defeating defeat Bernie Sanders or else, uh, and so that made the decision obvious to him. Otherwise, any other contender would have said, "Okay, I took my lumps in South Carolina. I'm moving on." But that was not the name of the game this year. And I just think we need to know that. That's not the reason, the only reason why Bernie lost. And the rest of the piece really is, you know, the bulk of the piece is about, okay, so that's right. the officials and they are against Bernie. And we knew, we knew that already. Now we know it even more. We shouldn't forget it. But the real problem is why do they control the voters? Why did this move convince so many voters um, to, to vote for status quo Joe over the political revolution? You know, what, what, and the truth is we don't have a social democratic majority in the Democratic Party right now. I think I think it you know you had there's no such thing as a fair test or a fair run on this, but uh, I think the two Sanders campaigns collectively both show our strength, you know, show our relevance, uh, which is a, not a small thing, but there's a big gap between relevance and power and we don't have the democratic numbers for power. We have to acknowledge that we, we have to I think we have to take a look at, where you know where our strengths are where our weaknesses are and that that was what the rest of the piece is about but i think we have to acknowledge that flat out and say um yes the officials are all against us but why were they able to be so effective that's that those are the harder questions um uh going forward uh you know that i hope the post sanders left will take take to heart great what i found pretty interesting and and actually it's the whole issue I read the whole issue. Um, yeah, um, which is, there's some good stuff yeah. in there. Yeah, highly recommended. Besides some of the stuff, I I still haven't got my print copy. The oral history so is pretty cool. Reading. The oral history is very cool. It's awesome. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I got I got mine. Um, yeah, and I read it, you know, front to back, and and I think that's the best way to read your piece is is what is what the context of everyone else is, including all the people that have been with Bernie for a long time, um, because reading up to your piece what helped me kind of have your piece make more sense was things that you didn't really cover in your piece which is like what you touched on the media elizabeth the elizabeth warren factor the heart attack um you can kind of do that math on your own reading your piece so yeah. your piece kind of does a really good job at at showing what nobody covered which is like latinos are like ready for for Bernie, which I didn't realize it was that big of a number. That was really shocking to me. Um, I kind of understood that people without a college education would have gone Bernie. Um, and 
the thing I don't think most people really get is I think there's still this leftover Clintonian um, people get it, but there's a, there was a real anger that people felt specifically white women with money um, that Bernie hurt Hillary. And it oh. wasn't a, it hurt her in a difference of ideology and we're running against just, we're running on different platforms because I completely disagree with your record and, and that's politics. It was more like, there's still this blame that has carried over that Donald Trump is here because Bernie. And I think that a lot of people aren't really giving enough credit. And I'm, and that's, that's just my everyday life with my friends I talk politics with. I know people who hate Bernie Sanders. They hate him. And I'm just like, you can hate how he sounds or maybe how he looks, but how do you hate the record or the ideas? And, and these are liberal New Yorkers with good jobs and, and more educated than me. And they will say, I just hate them. Um, and I don't know what that is. And I'm sure as time goes on, we will kind of get to the bottom of that. But um, I think that along with the media that hate him. I mean, the media, they covered Sanders so reluctantly. They gave him no props. It was more of a panic. Um, and I thought part of part of the, the issue that did well was talking about the Chris Matthews and the Chuck Todd's, these, these media liberals that we trust that were calling his supporters Nazis. And and that is, you know, it's more of a um, something to think about and we, we should talk about it. But how does that come into this election? Because you can't put that shit in people's heads before the biggest election of our lifetime and make them, you know, fear the this new what they're calling radical left. Um, and, and the Trump campaign are they literally are saying Kamala Harris and Joe Biden are Trojan horses for the radical left, which is hilarious. And the media, because they allowed that narrative to go on about Sanders to to hurt him. How do you deal with that now when Trump is going to attack it? Yeah, I mean, I'm just still st staggered at the thought of hating Bernie, that, that you think it's acceptable to hate Bernie Sanders, how Bernie Sanders looks, because yeah. he's such a beautiful, he's a he's such a beautiful man. And watching him at the DMC with that with that freshly chopped wood behind him, the American flag just serenely <laughs> presiding in the background. I yes. was just, I was just sort of smelling of a Vermont, a Vermont morning. And <laughs> It the beauty, beauty filled my eyes and my lungs. So I, I just I don't know where those where those people get off, Tony. Um, <laughs> Welcome to my life. I just yeah. can't even. But talk I think about you're actually anymore. right, and this is something for all of my like little demographic parsings I didn't get into. But I think you're specifically right. Um, I, I talked a little bit about a gender the gender gap actually among less among sort of um, the white the so-called white working class, you know, white white voters without college degrees where there was a massive gender gap. And this is where I'm skeptical of this whole idea that, um, you know, that, 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 that the white working class opposed Bernie because he was too culturally liberal. That, that's a thing, that, that's something you've seen from, from the right and from other portions of the left making that case. I don't think that the numbers show that out because if anything, the people who defected against Bernie were more white working class women who I think are elect electability voters who are like, we need Trump out. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get Trump out. Um, and but what I didn't think about was the gender gap among among wealthier white voters. And I, I bet it was massive. It, you know, I didn't I haven't looked very closely, but I bet it was utterly massive. And um, I think there is a specific residue of the Clinton campaign there, too. I think that's that's probably right. But the truth is, Bernie got smashed with 
um, you know, sub white, wealthy suburban white voters of both or all genders. Um, you know, he was he was he was th this. That's what cost him the election. I mean, fundamentally, if if the piece argues that, you know, that if you had to break down the sort of demographics of why these voters went for Biden, you know, the failure to win more African American voters is 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 important, uh, unignorable, and I try to get into that. Cedric Johnson also has a really good piece on that uh, in, about South Carolina in the issue. Um, uh, the failure to uh, bring more new working class voters to the polls, that's actually the one that scares me the most going forward um, and the tr most troubling one for the left more broadly. That's important. Uh, but the real decisive knockout blow in this particular election was this flood of new uh, formerly Republican suburban white voters who came out to stop Sanders following that uh, the, the kind of cable TV narrative to stop the radical left, elect a, uh, you know, the never Trump Republican turned Democrat voter, the Halliburton Democrat, as I talk about, because if you look at the precincts uh, that went overwhelmingly in, in this direction for Biden, for Bloomberg, but then ultimately for Biden, um, they were, you know, the sub suburbs and exurbs of metro areas that are heavily Republican, um, but have swung against Trump in opinion polls and have now swung and swung decisively against Sanders and flooded the electorate. In a place like South Carolina, we saw this enormously. Um, obviously, black voters preferred Biden to Sanders. We know that. But um, but 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 less remarked on was the enormous surge. Black voter turnout in South Carolina was close to flat. Uh, white voter turnout was up enormously. There was a lot. There are a lot of you know northeastern and midwestern snowbird retirees to South Carolina who are centrist or center right in their politics and who jumped in to oppose Sanders and vote and vote and vote in uh, Biden. And that happened in the Houston suburbs. I looked most closely. It happened in North Carolina. It happened in Northern Virginia. All these places um, where Bernie just got absolutely steamrolled way worse than in 2016. If we thought suburbanites voted Hillary Clinton over wealthy suburbanites voted Hillary Clinton over over Bernie, the margins actually weren't that bad compared to this year. Um, he, you know, he was, and, and the turnout was so much higher. Um, that's what really specifically killed him. And that's an important part of this new Democratic coalition. I mean, in some sense, these are voters that the Democrats are relying on to defeat Trump. And in that sense, you know, I think, I don't know if it will hurt Biden in the general election. I think, I think having, I think, you know, I think Biden is in strong position in some ways with those voters, but what does that coalition mean for Democratic Party politics going forward? I don't know, because these voters, uh, you know, these never Trump conservative now Democrats, they're not on they're obviously not on board for the Sanders platform. What do they want to do with the Democratic Party in power? I don't know. Um, that's an open question. But I, think, I don't think they want anything that I want. Or I think want. a big problem with the Sanders campaign, too, is um, they just never could get the the idea of democratic socialism they really just I, I just don't think they ever really made it clear you know we knew his big sweeping ideas medicare for all um you know free education um paid sick leaves you name it everything that sounds great um i always felt like even in the debates it was always like the question would always be well how are you going to pay for it and i never felt like they ever really answered that question other than we're going to tax the billionaires, which is wonderful, and they should. Um, 
the problem that I think happened was people that have money that, you know, there's like people that got dough and they're, they're rich. And those people do not want Bernie Sanders. But then there's these people in New York that we were all surrounded by in Brooklyn that are making mm-hmm. four hundred, $500,000 a year who, whose lives would be not that affected. I mean, th- that tax bracket is taxed at roughly a little over 40% anyway. So your th- Bernie's plan was never going to tax him at 50. It might have raised a percent or so. Um, but those are also the Democrats that would could never even think about um, Bernie because it in their minds, nobody ever educated them enough to let them know that like, in Canada, in the UK, there's there's lots of millionaires. I promise you, plenty that are living a great life. There there are social societies where you can still be a multimillionaire, but people can can go to the doctor when they have cancer. Well, th- th- those sound like those uh, Patagonia Democrats you're talking about. In your piece, yeah, right? the Patagonia yeah. Democrats, which I love. Those loved. were yeah. the ones who the, that was the that was the hardcore rump of Elizabeth Warren voters that, that yeah. stuck it out with Warren all along. I mean, obviously, I think. Plenty of people in that demographic would have ultimately gone Biden too, but 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 in the in the in the Super Tuesday states, those are the those are the the twelve percent that went that went Warren, um, you know, down the line. And yeah, I mean, um, so I mean that's another that was that's obviously another factor in the campaign. I mean, I, I actually found it hard to say that Warren's persistence in the race was really decisive. In this case, it was it was it, it you know you never know if she had dropped out and really gotten all behind Sanders, maybe the narrative would change. You can't say uh, for sure, um, but you know the truth is that was never going to happen. That's not who she is. That's not who her coalition is. And you know the Sanders strategy was never about the Patagonia Democrats. Frankly, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, like I agree, Tony, that some of these people, and I'm not so militant against this that I'm not with some people on the left who are like. No, we don't want any, you know, professional class support. Any PMCs who who join the party are immediately, you know, their wreckers and kulaks or something. Obviously, look, it's a, it's a, you know, we need a cross class strategy to get to a majority here. So we need a PMC element. It's ridiculous to say that we'll never have one because there are a lot of PMC Bernie voters too. So, so I'm not militantly against this class, but the truth is. For the Bernie strategy, and I think the Jacobin strategy going forward, is not primarily based on turning the opinions of, of professionals making mid six figures. You know, I think it's got to be based on um, bringing you know people who's who would mater- really materially benefit from the Sanders policy and making them buy in to this and not stay home from on primary day or on election day. And this is where Bernie had some real successes with Latinos, I think, in, right. if you look at it, in flipping a lot of kind of party line Latinos in, you know, he, he won some of these districts in LA by outright majorities, even though the representative had endorsed Biden. And, it, you know, this is overwhelming. And I think, I hope that there's a strategy to run left-wing candidates in those races and get some more left-wing Latinos in Congress, because that would be great. So there were some successes, but there was a lot even in those cases, the turnouts weren't really that high. So there was no, there were, you know, there was some youth surge, but not enough. And there weren't enough working class voters coming to coming out to vote on primary day, ultimately to give. And okay, look, as Seth Ackerman's piece in the Jackman, I'm also going to hype because it's a really good, even more than mine, it's a good historical piece, which is like, look, it's a fallacy to say that 
movements are won and lost based on elections, based on a single election. Otherwise, Barry Goldwater and the conservative Republicans would be in the dustbin of history forever. This is like the fallacy of like the pundit takeocracy that it's like, oh, well, you lost. So your theory is disproven next. Like, that's not how history works. You know, sometimes things take generations. You know, uh, William Jennings Bryan tried to realign the Democratic Party around as a, as a liberal reform party, as opposed to a bastion of conservatism, Confederate conservatism. And he lost two elections. And then 30 years later comes Frederick, De you know, uh, Frederick Delano Roosevelt, comes, <laughs> my favorite president, Frederick Douglass Roosevelt. Um, and and but, but seriously, this is these are these things take generations. And I think it's from the demographics. There's a really good case that the Bernie generation is actually going to show up in the 2040s or something like that. So but 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 right now we we need we need more working class, lower middle class people who stand to benefit materially from Medicare for all. We needed more of them to come out to stop this suburban surge for Biden. And in 2020, those numbers were not there. I think probably in my sense, more because of apathy and depoliticization than, um, than sort of anti-socialism. But in that sense, Tony, you're right that, that the argument for socialism never became in the Bernie campaign. It never quite became so urgent and compelling as a kind of, you know, this is how, you know, your life will get better. This is this is how this worldview um, can actually and through this sclerotic political system can actually make a difference in your life that that registered some places, but in but not enough. And that's that's our job is to keep making that that argument register. Yeah, I thought I'm. I saw that argument made sometimes and I thought it was so super effective. Sometimes, you know, when Bernie would do those town halls and in like yeah. West Virginia or something. Okay. And, you know, like one on one, he would explain, yes, you, there'll be more taxation, but you won't have to pay for college tuition and you can go to the doctor without fear. And, you know, what about all those, you know, and that really worked. I mean, he was going into the kind of the belly of the beast of the political opposition. And you could see on people's faces like maybe they weren't turned right away, but they were thinking, you know, they were, it was churning. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and so. I don't know. So a couple of things that was frustrating for everybody, obviously, was and you've already talked about it, but the turnout, right? It's like the working class and you connect this with um, your analysis of this so-called black vote um, and and the working class vote. Right. And that they're that they're effectively connected because in both cases, <laughs> they didn't come out in the big numbers that would have been needed uh, for Bernie to get some victories. In both cases, it seems like there's, I don't know, like there's ideological sympathy um, in the black community. And obviously, and as you point out, it's not monolithic, but there's, you know, significant quarters in the black community that are very sympathetic to the democratic socialist vote, the Bernie movement, et cetera. The same, same goes for the working class. How do we account for the chasm between that ideological sympathy um, and the lack of turnout, right? Like, is, is it not enough outreach? Because, um, you know, political alienation and apathy, that's like endemic to American politics, like produced, right? Like, like you know, they want you to, <laughs> to be that way. So, so what is the job then moving forward of, of motivating that possible sleeping giant of a massive electorate that would be on board with this stuff? Yeah, the, yeah, they are. They are related. And obviously they're also related because, you know, 
overwhelming majority of black voters are also probably, you know, could be described as working class voters or at least not wealthy voters. Um, so often these are literally the same people um, or not to mention working class black non-voters who are another another big demographic. But but let me let me try to take them in turn in the way that the piece does just um because uh, it is such a damn novel of like, you almost have to sit down and read it in like four different sections. I was like trying to reread it again to like refresh myself because this thing has been in incubation for so long. And I was like, I didn't leave enough time to read this thing. Um, uh, okay. But with black voters, I mean, in some ways, the pro- pro- the, there are distinctions too, because the problem that Bernie had with black voters wasn't just the turnout. It was also that they voted against mm-hmm. him. You know, that, that, that the exit polls show reliably that even in places, and I was much more optimistic because as, as late as February, there were some polls showing Bernie neck and neck with Biden in, especially outside the South with black voters, say in California, uh, or with black voters in, 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 in the Northeast or Midwest. Um, but it, none of the exit polls showed Bernie making real headway, except in a few select places like Minnesota, where he did really well, um, you know, which is which is a which is a distinct kind of community. So um, in most cases, he got hammered. And if you look at black neighborhoods on the ground in, in the, at the precinct level, which is what I try to do, um, he got hammered even even more decisively um, than than uh, than 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 it, at the state level. Uh, and it wasn't very different from 2016. So what's going on here? I think. I think the thing is, it's bigger than Bernie. That's one point the piece makes is that in the era of Obama, uh, you know, most reliable black primary voters, this is a small group, turnout is not very high even to begin with in the primary election. And they're prim- they're mostly older um, and they have developed both affective and kind of transactional institutional loyalty to the black leadership class, the black political uh, the political class that is really I think I do think the Obama uh, presidency sort of strengthened that immeasurably um, uh, in, in such a way as like the black political establishment even under Clinton was had some power in Congress but Clinton was constantly pissing on it rhetorically whereas under Obama it literally was you know part of the ruling operation within the party and I think you know somebody like Cedric Johnson's piece talks about Jim Clyburn's significance in 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 South Carolina. You know, you talk about John Lewis in Georgia or Cedric Richmond in in Louisiana. You know, these guys are Keem Jeffries in New York and Gregory Meeks. These guys have real power at the state level. They are actual party bosses for these parties Um, and they have real impact on real influence on constituents in a way that I think is not there's no parallel with democratic white working class voters or latino working class voters i think the 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 history of the of the sort of black political establishment is distinct and that and that establishment at the at the official level lined up against bernie it lined up against left candidates all around the country you know we've seen the left-wing black candidates in um in the atlanta mayoral race uh in uh, Chewy Garcia in in uh, Chicago. You know, people. You know, black voters preferred Rahm Emanuel. They preferred Joe Crowley. They preferred uh, a lot of establishment candidates, even non-black candidates, uh, against the left-wing candidates. So this is a bigger problem. I think it's about this these institutional connections. Uh, how do you overcome it? I think there is. We're already seeing evidence that in a post-Bernie world, it can be overcome. Uh, Jamal Bowman's right. victory was huge. Um, actually, you know, that was a specific case. I don't think he found the right formula because somebody like Michaela Wilkes, who was running a black candidate running against Steny Hoyer in Maryland in black Prince George's County, she got blown out. Uh, Engel just turned out to be a lot weaker than Hoyer. 
for instance, and Engel made some flubs and everyone realized, okay, this guy's a joke. And wait a minute, we have this really compelling, strong, also black candidate running and Bowman, Bowman jumped in. And he's, he's a really important figure going forward. Same thing in St. Louis with Cory Bush, another huge victory. Yeah. Um, again, if you look at the demographics, Cory Bush probably didn't win the majority of black voters. You know, Lacey Clay still won North St. Louis. Uh, Cory Bush won, um, you know, won gentrifying St. Louis and won some of the and won some of the gentrifying suburbs. Uh, and then she, but she made a dent. She got, she didn't get Bernie's twenty percent. She got forty percent in North St. Louis. So she made a dent, and now she's in office. That makes a difference. When you have people like Bush and Bowman, I think then suddenly you have left-wing black political electeds at the national level who have Bernie politics. And they're, you know, it'll be really interesting to see what happens, how their relations are with, say, the Hakeem Jeffreyses and the Gregory Meekses of the world who want to turn them into just lockstep party people. I don't think they will be. I think their loyalties, they've come up through a different tradition and their ideology and their loyalties are different. But that that those organizations need to be maintained. I think going forward, there there is hope for getting some of those. Not as as Cedric Johnson, as Adolph Reed has pointed out. This, there's a great piece with uh, Adolph Reed and Willie Leggett wrote after South Carolina. We, we got to stop talking about the black vote because yeah. um, the goal should never be to win the black vote. It's to basically just split the black vote. Is to win black voters who are already on paper supporting Medicare for all, et cetera, et cetera. And I think with between Bush and with Bowman uh, going forward, um, you know, which, which, you know, frankly, there was no, you know, Ilhan Omar is uh, African-American, but she's Somali-American, you know. It's a different, it's a, di you know, Bush and Bowman represent a different cultural group that now we have national leaders that, that you know, who can, who, who reflect the already existing preferences of so many of those voters. Um, and hopefully there'll be some more institutional bridges built. Same thing in New York at the local level. I know people like Jabari Brisport, who I campaigned for at state Senate, won. He won again with gentrifying voters. You know, he probably didn't win in East Bedstein. He won in, uh, he won in, you know, Cobble Hill. Uh, but, but now he's in office and he's the representative for Bedstein too. So I think he will have no problem you know, winning over that support going forward. So this, this, these changes are happening, but they're, they, 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 they weren't happening quickly enough to help Bernie, given the institutional support against him. Now, working class, that's, a, that's another, the broader working class, that's another question, but maybe I'm, I'll kick it back to you guys because that was long-winded enough. We had Jabari on earlier um, before, when he was campaigning, and, and he was saying similar right. things, right? And we were so psyched when he won, um, but that his argument was that, it's kind of like the the motto of the Bernie campaign and not me us. It's that it's not necessarily about Bernie. I mean, people do have you know uh, an affinity for Bernie for whatever reasons, and but but it's really the argument he's making, and that what Jabari was saying is that he what Bernie did and what his legacy will be is sort of teaching and grooming a new generation of politicians uh, to claw their way up. Uh, into uh, local, state, and then hopefully the national conversation, right? That that's that's, yeah, that's the it's a, it's it's a long game, I guess. Right? That's that's, that's yeah. the idea. And he will a lot a lot of these young democratic socialists winning like a Jabari. Jabari's still going to go into Bedsty. You know, typically the Democratic Party, which is why we're in this predicament, has right. won off off of the black vote or poor people or whatever it is, and then abandoned them because. That's what you traditionally did as a Democrat. Um, 
that's not happening here. I mean, the reason why AOC blows out her competition, which is heavily funded, is because she's walking the streets and the people see her, they know her, um, they feel like they know her. And that's tough. I mean, if you get candidates that do that, they'll be around for a long time and it will grow. I have no doubt about it. Yeah, and I think, I, I mean, maybe that does connect then to the ultimate, to the to the larger working class problem, which I think, you know, to, to, win, a, to win a basically a social democratic majority within the primary electorate there you there's really no route to do it if you're if you're getting 20 percent of, of of black voters um so you need to improve there there are there there are reasons to think that it will but you also need more just broader working class participation black brown white everything and um and and i think having i mean I, I, this is where you know i'm cheered by some of the victories because it's happening unevenly right like it's happening really strongly in urban areas. I mean, that's where we're seeing a lot of progress. And I do think these new incumbents with their, so with their, you know, who think, see the world like Jabari and, and Jamal Bowman and Corey Bush see the world, Will and AOC will develop those relationships and will advance the struggle, uh, will stay in office and will also, you know, maybe help those communities feel, you know, genuinely empowered uh, in their politics. But we need something larger than just these metropolitan cores you know um uh, it's good to make progress against them against the machine in new york say but new york is not the nation we need we need we need not just rural but small town suburban because you know i trash the suburbs more than anyone from patagonia to halliburton but people are always <laughs> saying it coming at me on twitter as a child of the suburbs i know this that the suburbs are also not monolithic like when i say the suburbs usually what i'm talking about is this particular slice of, you know, this enclave of, you know, Potomac, Maryland, this very specific kind of neighborhood. Um, but the broader suburbs are incredibly diverse racially, economically, ideologically, in every other way. So we need, we need, and the, the exurbs are too. So we need, um, you know, candidates who can challenge, um, who can extend this Sanders project uh, in precincts that aren't just kind of um, dense, large metro cities. Um, and so that's the, that's that's another frontier that I'm worried that our that our movement and the the the, the, the 20, 20, 20 results showed this is tending to sort of chase the voters the the sort of um, you know the woke voters where they already are basically um, and you know that's important you can win some you can get some wins there you can elect you know you know you can elect of Congress people a lot you know even dozens um, but you're not going to win a majority that way. Um, so you need, at some point, we need to think about how to extend, um, how to extend that, that movement um, uh, to a broader working class that isn't just in Brooklyn um, or in downtown St. Louis. Okay. All right. So we, we could talk to you for a long time, but we're going to move on. We're going to take a break. And we do this. We got a new bit that you probably don't know about. So we, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna end with yeah, that. Yeah, stick around. You know, stick around. You can jump in. It's called Party Favors. And Tony will explain it to you when you come back.
so we do this almost every week um, where we do party favors, where Amit and I, because we know everything about uh, political strategy, we give a little favor to each party, the Democrats who we want to win, and we reluctantly do the Republicans as well. We just give them a little advice that if they listen, we'll help them. So. I can go first. Uh, I can go first this week. You got yeah, it? Okay. Yeah. Who are we starting I'm going to start with the Democrats. And this is actually, we, and this is, uh, we always start with the Democrats. Yeah, yeah I mean, because <laughs> you don't actually want to do the Republicans. Um, <laughs> but okay. And so the Democrats, and this is hard for me to say because I'm always critical of them, but this is more for their supporters, any would be Democrats, Democratic voters. Uh, it's apostasy for me, actually, but, but whatever, um, that they should be very positive about the ticket and push for these guys to win that as biden harris is probably the ticket that i least wanted to end up seeing uh come out um basically to uh, a cop and a cop lover um Buddha judge Klobuchar? that would have been pretty bad too that would have been, been pretty I, I bad think worse yeah yeah you're wrong I think yeah worse. no I mean there's we can go through a lot of combinations I think somewhere in the median <laughs> yeah. of like yeah. at the yeah. lower end of the distribution maybe like the 40th yeah, percentile. yeah. there we Start. go there we go um in, in any event I was not psyched about it um but they've got to win they've got to win and then they have to uh, we can train our fire on their left flank. Um, that 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 I think it's it has to be a united front right now. Um, I don't know what you want to call it. It's 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 uh, the the Trump administration. If they because I, I, I a lot of people that I hear and Tony's talking about this too, and and a lot of people are pretty sanguine about. Oh yeah, you know I think. You know, Trump is he's he's self-immolating right now, and 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 you know he, he's I I am much more con- worried that he this guy actually still might win. Um, I think he's got a very good chance of winning. Uh, so I think there has to be just a sort of united opposition here, um, and so therefore, to the electorate, if you want to vote for the Democrats. Don't destroy them now. Destroy them later when they get into power and then try to shift their policies. Okay. Um, Yeah, I I do think I still believe Trump's done. But I will say there is always a little piece of me that's like, how many of these motherfuckers are lying and saying they're not voting for him? Because that's a real that's a real thing. I mean, he went in 60 points under in the last one. People lie. Um, I think what the DNC needs to do right now is yeah we get it we all need to who cares if we like biden or or kamala who cares like yeah we love them right now we absolutely love them i do i'm excited about them i'm excited about the chair i'm sitting on if it's running against trump um they need to during these next few nights at dnc they need more veterans more generals more people in uniform a tribute to Bo. they need to show i mean there's a ton of military heads of heads of military former chief of staffs um uh, um not chief of staff what do they call them the chief Sorry, chief of staff yeah 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 exactly mattis the for, for instance what bring them they hate trump get these get these people who 
have dedicated their lives to the code of America, good or bad, whatever you think it is, Colin Powell, all of these people, um, and show that actually the heart of the people who actually do the real fighting also hate Trump because I'm telling you, they do. I mean, the people that are working with him in the white house that are are coming from the Pentagon, they hate the guy. Most of them hate the guy. And I'm just, I don't think, I don't think Bruce Springsteen and, uh, you know, Justin Bieber are going to push the needle. Uh, I don't, I think what's going to bring either stop people from just voting that would have voted for Trump or bring it, bring some of those people back to common sense is we need to just show that Trump is the enemy to everybody. And it's not through John Kasich. No one cares about him. I want to see mad dog Mattis come out there full uniform in front of the American flag and talk about how important this is and, and about, and Kelly who used to be his chief, chief, uh, Chief of staff. I think he was a chief. Did of staff. you guys? Uh, I'm sorry to jump in here, Tony. Did you guys see that Defense One uh, open letter that John Noggle wrote? Um, no. So Defense One is like this daily, I guess, like uh, zine um, that all defense intellectuals read. Um, and uh, Lieutenant Colonel John Noggle was the. Uh, it's kind of like a lieutenant for uh, Petraeus. Um, in Iraq. He's like a high priest of counterinsurgency and stuff like that. Um, but he wrote this letter this past week, basically saying to the military that Trump is actively trying to undermine the election. And if he does so, the military should go in and arrest him and take him out. And then he got a lot of flack for it by, by defense one. And then for publishing and there's all this stuff happened. But to your point, there to is that point. sentiment. There is get that sentiment. Get them all out there. Get Kelly at Mattis. Get them all. Tom Clancy strategy. <laughs> Full uniform. This is, we need, we need, we need, we need the entire cast of Patriot Games and Clear and Present Danger. All I'm talking Mel Carl. Gibson dressed as the Patriot American flag. <laughs> get them all out there. That's my advice. Blind, blind them with medals. All right. Hundred percent. I don't. I don't have any advice for the Democrats, but if I'll just jump in, I will say, even coming from maybe even a little bit harder left than angle from you guys, I have no qualms in saying that I I want Biden to win. I'm not. I, I actually didn't think I would be here in March. I thought, you know, uh, Matt Chrisman at, at at Chapo Trap House coined the, the phrase, you know, not black pilled or red pilled, but grill pilled. You know, that's where your take on the election after Bernie lost was, well, I'm just grilling. You know, I don't care. And I actually did feel in the give in the immediate aftermath of the weight of Biden's crushing of the left. I actually did feel totally numb and indifferent. But um, and and the prospect of a second Trump term, I, I will say at that moment did not haunt me. But I, I do think somehow between covid and, and this meltdown um, and, and also just thinking about how liberals, how liberals with money to use your phrase tony are will will react to another trump term uh, my mind will just explode and and to stop that prospect if nothing else <laughs> it is important for biden to win the, but seriously the, the, the state of debate for the left is awful under trump we saw how much trump obsession it really killed bernie because everyone has spent the last four years talking about you know the only thing we need to do is get Trump out. So everybody got real conservative and real cautious and went with Biden. And I think that's if you think that will change in the next four years, you're crazy. We need Trump out uh, and we need Biden in to even have a, any kind of conver productive conversation about where this country should go. So no qualms, no qualms there. Great. 
Now we move on. This is the part no, no one. Oh, he could do. win too. I agree with you. Yeah. I agree with you. It's not. It's you not, think so? Um, I think it's going to be a squeaker, man. I th I do not think it's going to be. I around. think he will lose, but I think he could win. I think he could win. It just anything could happen. We'll see. If we need the COVID stuff to keep. I mean, it's bad, but it's like that's what's killed him is COVID. So yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. if he gets a vaccine next week and we're all partying by November at bars, he, yeah. then I'll change my opinion. Yeah. Um, Amit, you want to go first GOP. On, on GOP? Um, God. All right. Um, so I think one thing that they can do um, is is basically to to use their older guard um the Mitch McConnell's of the world to rally their, you know, their conservative base, fiscally conservative base, uh, the people who all they really care about are tax cuts. Right. And that's, that's, I mean, that's what Republicans really just care. I mean, Trump can do whatever he wants as long as they get their tax cuts. That if, if they're able to sort of push that, that the, your taxes will go down once again. Um, I think they can eke out a victory because I, I saw that report this week that Trump is having trouble with big donors, right? That that the the only six of the the various um, array of people who gave him multi million dollar um, uh, super PAC uh -huh. money are doing it now, right? So there's only so many you know Sheldon Adelsons and stuff like that. So so really sort of you know putting out the and the establishment's kind of putting their 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 necks on the line here by doing that the the UOP because if they lose then you know they're 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 forever branded as just you know going down with the ship of Trump but I think it would be very effective um yeah so I would say that so wait what's your recommendation that Mitch McConnell the um the minority leadership in the house go out there and really put full court press to the moneyed republican elite to say look you guys really got to sort of step up here because we might lose and uh if you do that you know you saw that first tax cut think about the next time around we'll give you land in ohio <laughs> right. when this is all over right. uh this is very easy for me and i cannot believe they're not doing it freeze rent freeze mortgage cut checks it's so simple you will win you'll you'll dance into the white house if you for the until november because that's november who gives a shit you're in and, and you're going to be a scumbag people are people are starting to get evicted now and that those people are going to be very angry and how you're letting that happen all over the country it's not just like a, a new york thing i mean it's poor states it's rich cities it doesn't matter there's there's going to be a, a huge amount of displaced people who are living maybe living with mom or living with whoever and they're the only person they're going to be able to blame is him so freeze rent freeze mortgages so that that offsets the landlords getting pissed off and start sending fucking monthly 1200 whatever bankrupt the country who gives a shit the guy's bankrupt every business he's ever had it's your i think it's the last thing he could do that will actually make people maybe like him again i agree with that i think they this is from a from a left perspective this is our best hope is that their 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 dang ideology is going to stub them in the toe again yeah. and that Trump actually gets this more than the the senators because or they don't give a shit that they much about care. him losing that's yeah. also possible 
Um, they're not gonna they're not gonna break their ideology to reelect him. But if they really wanted to, if they were if they wanted to go all in, they would continue those checks. And that's their only chance. Because if if there's more social unrest than chaos when these things go off, then that's gonna that could tilt it to an epic landslide for 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 Biden. Okay, last quick thing, and I don't care if we're going a little over. Have you did you guys see Trump is reviewing the possibility of uh, pardoning Snowden? Yeah, I did see that. I just saw that. I didn't read it though. What what is what are the implications of that if he pardons Snowden? Does it help him or hurt him? Or does it do nothing? It helps your army of lieutenant colonels out to denounce him, you know. <laughs> right. if, if the Democrats want to be this national security state, then Snowden and Trump you could tie them together. Yep. I don't know though. Something to monitor. Yeah. I mean, I don't think, do you think he will, what, what was his lot? What did he say about it? He just said, Hey, real, real patriot. My he guess, be... my guess is, and this is just from reading a couple of articles. Uh, no one's really deeply covered his intentions, but minor to, to get the Bernie people that voted uh-huh. for him last time to stick there, because that's actually a pretty important issue to a lot of people that cannot stand the government surveillance. Um, it, it would be a sneaky way. Although I don't, I don't like, I would be really happy he did that and just couldn't wait to vote for Biden. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think Trump's got much play on the left anymore, though. I, if you look at the polls, it's real small. And I feel like I actually, which surprised me, I think COVID, I think my journey here, it does count for a lot of people. Cause I think there were a lot of people, I was certain in like March that there would be a huge amount of people sitting out. There would be a huge amount of people writing in Bernie, all sorts of stuff. And I think that's just vanished up. That's just shriveled up with the way that, okay, you know, we just need to end this madness and get back to some kind of, you know, level playing field for, for any, where there's a hope for any kind of progressive politics. And it yeah. can't happen with this, this guy. I agree. And there's just enough young leaders like, like AOC, for instance, who I have no doubt in my mind at some point she's going to make a play. And, you know, I think when you see some of these Bernie disciples, they're few, but they're tough. And when you see it happen, I think you're like, you know what? We'll fight. We'll fight another time. Right now, it's just not the time. And I agree with you. I was very numb at first. And now I'm like, yeah, get him, Kamala. Like, get him. Go, like, get, put her on there. Like, okay. And I'm just like, I don't care. I just. Oh, I can't wait to see Kamala annihilate Mike Pence. Uh, I know. That's going to be nice. Well, that's going to be, that's gonna be, you know, good. last week, that was our party favors, was I said, uh, one, Biden should not debate and Pence should not debate i mean those two should sit it out we should just get rid of debates it's gonna it's gonna really hurt biden if he debates trump and it's really i mean pence is gonna pence is gonna look like a rag doll when she whoops his ass and that is what i'm looking forward to do you think you actually are they scheduling debates three apparently yeah um, I but i think that i'm worried about that that, that is I think where there's a vice presidential debate october 7th or something like that no those we, yeah. we should have but the presidential debate is where i may take back my Biden's got this because Biden was Biden was better in those Dem debates with Bernie than we thought though. Remember we were, I was really looking forward to that first one-on-one and I was like, this man's brain has melted. He will speak and macaroni will come out, but he actually, you know, was able to kind of lie his way through it and be like, no, I didn't do that. I didn't vote for against social security. He just was really feisty. They, whatever cocktail they gave him, yeah. they better double it. Uh, against Trump. Well, I agree with you, but there was also so many other people when it's one-on-one and, and here's the thing, Bernie, Bernie, when he debates, you debate your record and your issues. Trump will debate. Look at him. He just stumbled on those words. The guy won't even take a test. And that's how Trump wins is that he, 
gets away from politics and he attacks you on everything else. And it's, I think that's a, that, that favors Trump. I hope I'm wrong. I hope you're right. But you know, Biden five years ago, throw him, throw him in there. I just think he's lost a, a step. But do you think, I think there's a weird thing though, where with Trump humiliating Hillary Clinton, this country, there was still enough Hillary Clinton hatred mixed like, like for legitimate reasons, mixed with misogyny to kind of for that to work. But now we've had four years of Trump. His polls are shit. Everyone hates him. He comes in and beats up on poor pudding brain Joe Biden. Does that actually even help him or does he just look mean? He just looks like the the mean the mean idiot and Joe Biden's the nice idiot. I'm kind of hoping that I don't know. I mean, he's made fun of disabled reporters and gotten away with it. So I just don't know. I just think that part I think anybody that ever voted for him or is voting for him now, they just like they like that about him. I think they really that's that's the Trump they like is if you watch any of the rallies it's like the cruel oh. jokes that get the, get the biggest applause right, that, and stuff, that, right? That's like the 40% that is that, the baseline, right? right? Sure, sure. There were, there were a huge amount of people who were like, I don't really like him, but I hate her more. And that's why Biden's basically doubt. doing better. Is that's basically doubt. the biggest difference is there isn't enough people who hate Joe Biden no. more. And if even if he goes on, Joe Biden literally just sort of speaks and, you know, Jello comes out, as it will, um, it, it I, 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 I want, I mean, God, it's scary, though. It's, I, don't, I don't like to think Yeah, I don't know. It. That's why it's yeah. fun to think about. But you could be right. Biden could they go gave him a good us. cocktail before Bernie, though. He was feisty, at least. You know? He was. He was. <laughs> All right, man. Well, we've already gone over, but it's always good having you, dude. Uh, you know, thanks for putting in all the hard work. And uh, the, yeah. you know, we really recommend subscribing to Jacobin, actually. It's a phenomenal publication. Um, Amit and I both subscribe. Um, I've actually given it as multiple gifts to people. Yeah. Um, it's actually a really beautifully done it's um, actually really well produced. It's really it's well like produced. It's cool well looking and yeah, and there's good stuff. Yeah, in it, obviously. And you don't want to. It's it's not like your regular magazine where you want to throw it out. I keep them all. Yeah, they kind of look nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, Me too. So yeah, yeah subscribe and, and read um, Matt's article. It's 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 pretty informative and and you can walk away from it feeling something. Thanks, guys. Love talking to you guys as yeah, always. Man. All right. Well, we'll see you soon. All right. Peace. Um, yeah, well, when, when you have Matt Carp on, you kind of know it's going to be longer than an hour just cause yeah. you know, we can start talking yeah. basketball or, or the rock, can, or, right. you know, right. We can talk a lot of things. And, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but, but read his piece. I mean, subscribe to Jacobin. First of all, it's, I promise you, you will not, you will not be sorry you did it or, um, go online and see if you can find it. But it is really, it's a pretty, um, the special the Break good down. thing about Jacobin, I think, is that even if you disagree with it, um, it makes you think about the arguments pretty well and it's digestible for anyone. Yes. You know, so like even if you're like, oh, I don't know if I'm totally on board with everything here, it doesn't matter because at least it's got you thinking. Yeah. It's kind of like how once in a while I'll tune into Tucker Carlson just so I can throw <laughs> shit at the TV and just go, wow, this is nuts. <laughs> um, although not, it's not nuts. It's actually pretty brilliant. Yep. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, we will be back next week. That's um, right. No Politics at the Dinner Table is produced by our, our very own Amit Prakash. And uh, we'll be back next week. See you next week.